So this past Wednesday night, I had a membership class to teach at 6.30 p.m. And uh, Sarah was making steak and cheese sandwiches for supper, which smelled good. But unfortunately, I wasn't going to be able to uh, down one of them in time before class. So I, I figured, as I've done on plenty of occasions, that I would just wait and eat afterwards. Um, as I was prepping things over here for the class, I realized I had forgotten a couple of papers in the house, and so I jogged back over to get them. And when I got in the door, Sarah greeted me with the words, Zaxby ate your supper. <laughs> now, maybe you would imagine I'd be mad in hearing this, but I have to tell you, I'm mostly just numb at this point. <laughs> that rotten coon hound has eaten so many things that don't belong to him. He has stolen steak, chicken, pizza, cupcakes, cookies, and before this incident, his, his latest greatest crime was he stole a loaf of delicious babka cinnamon bread. Coonhounds are bred to hunt raccoons, but I'm telling you, they're just as mischievous as the raccoons are. Zaxby just loves taking other people's food. Now, the reason why Zaxby comes to mind as we approach today's text is that we're going to hear Jesus talking about dogs and their taste for food from the table. I'm going to invite you to turn with me this morning to Matthew 15. And we're going to be starting in verse 21. Matthew 15, 21. And in the first 20 verses of this chapter, you'll recall that um, Jesus had been responding to the Pharisees who were very upset that his disciples ate without cleaning their hands first. It wasn't hygienic concerns. It was ceremonial purity that the Pharisees expected a teacher like Jesus would have trained his disciples to follow. And Jesus told them, though, and his disciples, that what really matters is the condition of your heart, the purity of one's heart. So, we go to verse 21, and we're going to see a little bit of a theme of connection between these passages. In 21, leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre, in Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that, from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. 
So the place from which Jesus is leaving to go to the region of Tyre and Sidon is the area of Gennesaret and Capernaum. So if you look to the kind of the top area of the Sea of Galilee, which is the lake up there, um, it's that area. So he was leaving from there to go up to Tyre and Sidon. You see Tyre listed up there, which is up along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And Matthew says that he withdrew up there, um, which kind of suggests that Jesus, yet again, is trying to find a little bit of space from the crowds for a little bit. And we, we have additional indications of this in Mark's gospel account. In Mark 7, 24, um, when Jesus had arrived in that region, it said that he entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Um, unfortunately for, for Jesus, but fortunately for us, um, it wasn't able, he wasn't able to keep that a secret. Um, and as it turns out, that's all going according to his plans in terms of what he wants to teach his disciples. Now, there's something that you need to know about the region of Tyre and Sidon in order to kind of grasp the significance of what goes down in this passage. It's a largely Gentile region, and we wouldn't expect that Jesus would be well-known in this area, which is probably perhaps part of the reason why he withdrew up there. And you'll recall earlier that in Matthew 11, um, Jesus uses Tyre and Sidon as an example to point out kind of the wickedness of the people in the area of Galilee for their failure to respond to faith in him. In Matthew 11, 21 through 22, he says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. Now, when Jesus is referring to Tyre and Sidon here, he's not referring to Tyre and Sidon in its present day, as he was walking, talking with his disciples, he was referring to Tyre and Sidon in their ancient form, in which they had treated God's people poorly, and um, we see the prophets issue words of judgment against Tyre and Sidon, which is kind of that, which is why um, Jesus is using them as a point of example, just as he would talk about Sodom and Gomorrah as a point of comparison for judgment. Um, so he's going to a region which is known to be under God's judgment, a Gentile region, so people who aren't Jewish, who aren't part of the covenant people of God. And, uh, and then what happens next is he's in this house, he's not able to keep his presence there a secret, and Matthew says, a Canaanite woman comes to him. Now, that's a really interesting way to describe this woman, especially when we look at Mark's account. Because in Mark, in Mark 7.26, he says that the woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. And that's really kind of more of a um, contemporary way to describe this woman's ethnic identity. Most people in that region wouldn't have been referred to as Canaanites, but there's accuracy to it because that is the region of Canaan. And we understand that the land of Israel was formerly known as the land of Canaan, that it was settled upon, that it was um, 
occupied by pe people who were pagan, who were Gentiles, who were not Jewish, and that God had eventually given this land over to the people of Israel. So what J Matthew is doing here, referring to this woman as a Canaanite, is he's trying to tap into his audience's biblical memory. Because the Gospel of Matthew is written, it's kind of, the, the audience that Matthew has first in mind here is a Jewish audience. He's writing a Gospel for the Jews. And so he's tapping into that knowledge that they have of the Old Testament. And so this interaction between Jesus takes on even greater significance given that history. Now before we even speak of Canaan as a land in which someone could be called a Canaanite, um, we have to know that Canaan was actually first a person. Um, Canaan was a man who was the son of Ham, who was the son of Noah. And in fact, if you look in Genesis 10.15, it talks of how Canaan was the father of Sidon. It says Canaan was the father of Sidon in Genesis 10.15. Now, the way that the name Canaan comes to prominence, prominence is that Canaan receives a curse because of a sin that his father, Ham, uh, committed. In Genesis 9, 24-27, um, we have some verses that are following up a kind of an embarrassing incident for Noah. Noah, after the flood, he drank, he made himself a vineyard, he got very drunk, and he passed, passed out, and he was laying in his tent naked. And his son Ham, kind of the short of it, it's kind of difficult to understand the way that the, the scripture describes the situation, but the import of it is that Ham basically went in and kind of made fun of him. Um, now, his brothers, Shem and Japheth, didn't do that. They came in, covered their dad up. Now, we pick up in verse 24 of Genesis 9. It says, When Noah woke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. So this is Ham's son. Cursed be Canaan. The lowest of slaves will be to his brothers. So Noah's putting a family curse upon Canaan. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. The Jews descended from Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. So, Canaan has a curse, but it takes a while for that curse to really be fully manifested because for a while, the family of Canaan enjoys some success because they settled the land of Canaan, this whole region over here. That's what it was before it was the land of Israel. But it does eventually become the land of Israel because of a promise that God makes to Abram, a covenant that he sets up with him. In Genesis 12, 1-3, it says, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And so, spoiler alert, the land that he shows him is the land of Canaan. But Abram set out, and he didn't even know where God was going to lead him. He was just following him by faith. And this is where God leads him. Now, as we look at the Old Testament, we hear about these descriptions about Canaan and Israel, we can kind of tend to think, okay, is this just kind of nationalist propaganda for, for Israel, an ancient form of propaganda? Um, but there's verses that remind us that this isn't what's going on in the Bible, because the Bible isn't afraid to say that, that 
this isn't really about Israel at all. In Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 through 8, it says, The Lord did not set his affection on you, speaking about the people of Israel, and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So it has nothing about, uh, to do with who Israel is. It has everything to do about who God is. God is a God of love who keeps the promises that he makes, the promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. Now, there's another thing here, too, that kind of illuminates why it is that God gives the land of Canaan over to Israel. And this is recorded in Leviticus 20, verses 23 through 24. As they're going into the land, God tells the people, you must not live according to the customs of the nations I'm going to drive out before you. Because they did all these things, I abhorred them. So they've been doing evil, wicked things. But I said to you, you will possess their land. I will give it to you as an inheritance, a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm the Lord your God who has set you apart from the nations. And if you want to do a study into some of the practices of what they were doing in Canaan, it's, it, it, it can be a pretty grotesque study. I mean, they had all kinds of gross religious sexual practices. And worst of all was they would sacrifice bait, newborn babies to the god Moloch. They would have a burning fire, this god with a big mouth, and they would just toss babies into the fire. So God's like, I'm going to drive you out of the land. I'm going to give it to my people. So you can think about kind of this, this land, the promised land, the land of Canaan, which became the land of Israel, is kind of being God's stage for revealing to the world what he expects of human beings, that he is a holy God and that he will not tolerate sin before his presence. And this is where he's going to kind of play out what, that all, what all that means. So with that background in place, it's a lot easier for us to understand what's going on here between Jesus and this woman. She's a Gentile. They're entire in Sidon. She's described as a Canaanite. And she's coming to him, though, which is kind of an unexpected. You would expect, okay, if she's described as a Canaanite, she wouldn't want to have anything to do with Jesus. She'd just be going to her pagan gods. And in fact, one of the biblical commentators mentions that just several miles away from that area, there was a pagan temple dedicated to healing. So she could have gone there. But instead of going there, she has come to Jesus. And she's come to him because her daughter is demon-possessed. And Jesus has cast out plenty of demons. We've seen this recorded multiple times in this gospel. And we expect Jesus to respond by helping her. Um, and yet, he doesn't. And he doesn't even say a word to her, in fact, in response. And as the woman just keeps pleading and pleading and pleading, the disciples come to him, verse 23, and say, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. Now, the disciples, apart from possibly being a little bit annoyed, they might have had what they believed to be some good reasons for you know, asking Jesus to just send her away. Because you might recall in Matthew 10, verses 5 through 6, 
This is the instructions that Jesus gives to his disciples. He said, these 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. So Jesus has told his disciples, don't bother with the Gentiles. Just focus on the Jewish people. And in fact, his response that he ends up giving here kind of recalls that previous instruction. In verse 24, it says, He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, without the background that we've just gone over, none of this makes sense to, you know, how we imagine Jesus being like. But we do know, recognizing from these Old Testament passages, that God has made a special covenant with Israel, that they are the one that he has picked out among the nations They're the one that God has made promises of redemption to. So with these facts in place, it kind of makes sense that he would respond this way. And in fact, the disciples expect that he would respond this way, and any Jew would expect that he would respond this way. But the woman, and it's not clear whether she was within earshot of this, but let's assume she was. The woman yet persists. She's stubborn. She says, Lord, help me. Now again, it's notable that she's going to Jesus and the way that she's referring to Jesus. She calls him Lord. And earlier in verse 22, we see that she says, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. So this woman's aware of the messianic promises. She's aware of God's relation, the, God, the relationship that God has with the people of Israel and with David and the significance of who Jesus is. She's not your average Canaanite woman. Now, getting to verse 26 is where the dogs um, come in. Jesus responds to her. He says, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Now, as we read this, we say, Wow, that's a really harsh response from Jesus. Seems very insulting to be calling this woman a dog. And I, I want to remind you here that if we feel like that's insulting, we shouldn't just feel like that's insulting to that woman. We should feel like that's insulting to every single one of us. Because unless you're, you're of Jewish ethnicity here, all of us are Gentiles. If we were coming to Jesus in these circumstances, he'd be saying the exact same thing to each one of us. But there are, there are some difficulties here as we're reading this text, and I think we're kind of familiar with them, because how many of you um, have kind of advised your kids, sometimes you should have conversations in person or over the phone rather than through text, because people can misunderstand text. All of us, I think a lot of us have said that. And that's why they created emojis, because we know tone can be kind of missed just through mere words. So when Jesus is saying this, we don't know whether he's saying this with a little bit of a twinkle in his eye, with a little bit of playfulness. Like, oh, you know, it's, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs, because she is aware of this whole Jew-Gentile dynamic. It's not news to her that Jews aren't, really supposed to be helping out Gentiles or that there's this division between them. Now, 
what becomes clear here is that Jesus is using this moment to make a point, to reveal something more to his disciples. And it becomes clear in the way that he responds when she offers her response. The woman responds just as Jesus wanted her to. Jesus says, okay, it wouldn't be right for me to share. And she says, yes, it is, Lord. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. I love this response from this woman. She's just so bold. And that might indicate, again, kind of the way that Jesus was interacting with her, because if he had really reamed her out, you would think that maybe she wouldn't have, she would have just kind of turned away. But she feels like she's got an opening here to be say, well, you know, you talk about dogs, even dogs get even dogs get the crumbs. And, you know, in our own experience with dogs and kids, no one would deny that, yes, it's right to protect the kid's plate. I have to do that with James' plate all the time because Zaxby's trying to take food off his plate. Um, but wouldn't it be cruel if, you know, James dropped a chicken nugget and I scolded Zaxby for trying to take the chicken nugget? I think most of us might kind of feel that way because we feel the scraps belong to the dogs. That's their right. It belongs to them. In this response that the woman gives to Jesus, she's not denying God's special covenant promises to the people of Israel. But her response pushes to the surface that God's love is not limited to the Jews. God doesn't just only love the Jews. And this, as it turns out, is no innovation. Because when we go back to the Old Testament again, we see every indication that God does have love and redemptive purposes for all people. When you go to Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, and we referenced this verse earlier about the promise God gave to Abram that he would receive a land. It says, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Then he says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And then catch this. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. See, even when you go way back to the very beginning, when you just have Abram and Sarah, and God is making these promises to Abram that he's going to make him into a people which would become the people of Israel, we see that God has this universal intent and outlook that through Abram, somehow, all peoples on earth would be blessed, not just the Jewish people. When you go over to the next book, Exodus, God's renewing this covenant with his people. Exodus 19, 5-6 says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites as he was instructing Moses. Now, 
Our ears easily catch, okay, they're, you know, they're a special nation. All the earth belongs to God, but God is putting special favor on Israel. But we, we so easily miss that he's identifying Israel as a kingdom of priests. And what is the job of priests? But to mediate on the behalf of people. So within the nation of Israel, you had those among the Levites that were to serve as priests. And they were to intercede on the behalf of all the other tribes and serve before God's presence. But here, God is identifying the whole nation of Israel as a kingdom of priests. Who are they to mediate for? They're to mediate on behalf of all the peoples of the world. And in fact, we're seeing yet again God's redemptive purposes for the whole earth, that all peoples would be brought to God. And they were supposed to be a light for the nations. They were supposed to stand out. Now we understand that they wandered away from that calling. And in fact, when we go back to you know, talking about the land of Canaan and how those people got dr- driven out because of all their wicked practices, well, God does the very same thing to Israel. When they depart from God's way, they get, be- they get sent into exile into Babylon. So God is perfectly just. Even though he's made these promises to Israel, he's holding them to the same account. Now, beyond you know, this, these passages in Genesis and Exodus, we also found, find some really profound passages in the prophets. And there's so many texts there, texts that describe how God's intent is to bring all people to himself. I can't go over all of them. But I wanted to highlight four, and I'm going to actually put them on a screen so that way you can kind of catch the details and make sure we don't miss this. So I've got four passages here. They're going to be from Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Zechariah. First in Isaiah. In Isaiah here, we have a passage describing how God's going to gather all foreigners and others to himself. It says, In foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted at my altar. For my house will be called the house of prayer for all nations. The Sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. So we see that God's intent is that all people would come and pray to him. Now we go to Jeremiah, and I I find this passage really fascinating because it talks about the gathering in of the nations, but it also talks about how the Ark of the Covenant is going to pass away. So any of you Indiana Jones fans, you think, well, where's the Ark? Well, this explains why you're not finding the Ark. Jeremiah 3, verses 16 through 17. In those days, when your numbers have increased greatly in the land, declares the Lord, people will no longer say, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It will never enter their minds or be remembered. It will not be missed, nor will another one be made. At that time they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. No longer will they follow the stubbornness of their evil hearts. So we see God drawing the nations to himself and also transforming them. So when you talk about Canaan, when you talk about the Gentiles and all those ways, those wicked ways that had characterized them, that is no more. They're being changed somehow. 
you turn to Zechariah 8, verses 20 through 23, and I think kind of the image here brings back to mind the image of this woman pleading with Jesus, going to him, um, just chasing him. It says, This is what the Lord Almighty says. Many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come. And the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, Let us go at once to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going. And many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat him. This is what the Lord Almighty says. And this is the description I love the best. It says, In those days, ten people from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, Let us go with you, because we have heard that God is with you. Isn't that kind of the response here that we see from this woman? She's going after Jesus. She knows that God is with you. In fact, God, and Jesus is God with us. He is Emmanuel. And then finally, earlier in Zechariah, we see how all of these passages are really concentrated. They find their foundation in this hope of a coming Messiah. It says, Shout and be glad, daughter of Zion, for I am coming, and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you and you will know that the Lord has sent me to you. So you talk about the Jewish people, the people of Israel as being God's people. Well, here in Zechariah, he's telling us that they're not the only ones who are going to be my people. I'm going to be taking people from all nations and making them my people. So, when we add these scriptures to the ones that we already had into the background, Jesus' second response here to the woman makes sense. Rather than scolding her, this is what he says instead. Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. Jesus is praising her now because he knows all of this is true. And he's illustrating, he's revealing all this to his disciples who are on the sidelines, kind of watching like, what? <laughs> and here we hear in this praise an echo of the earlier praise that he gives to the Gentile centurion that we saw in Matthew 8.10, where this, the centurion had uh, sent a word to Jesus saying that he wanted his servant healed. And he just said, Jesus, just say the word. You don't even have to come into my house because you have all this power and authority and Jesus' response was, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. So we talk about crumbs. Jesus has been dropping breadcrumbs along the way here for us to see that, yes, he has been sent to the lost sheep of Israel, and yes, he has to deal with that first, but it's, it's always had that universal intent. And he's showing his disciples this based on his interactions here with this woman. Now, kind of tying it back to these earlier verses, verses 1 through, 20, 1 through 21, we see that what Jesus is also doing here is that he's breaking down the outward divisions between clean and unclean. Because, again, his intent is to bring redemption to all of creation and to every people, tongue, and tribe. Now, Jesus is going to go further here in the next ten verses in demonstrating this, but it's very easy to miss because we're presented 
with a very familiar series of events. So I'm not going to dwell too much on the narration of how it all goes down. Very similar, but different setting, and some critically different details. So picking up in verse 29, Matthew says, Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry, or they may collapse on the way. His disciples answered, Where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves and the fish, and when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and they in turn to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. And the number of those who ate was 4,000 men, besides women and children. After Jesus had sent the crowd away, he got into the boat and went to the vicinity of Maginan. Now again, this story is super familiar to us because we just read about this in chapter 14. It's like, didn't Jesus do this miracle? And why are... Why are they going into such detail? Because we know that Jesus did a lot of miracles over his ministry. Not everyone is, is described in, to the extent that this miracle is described yet again. It is similar, but there are differences here. We know some of the obvious ones. Instead of five loaves and two fish, we have seven loaves and three fish. Instead of collecting 12 baskets of leftovers, there's collected seven baskets. There's 4,000 men here, whereas before there was 5,000 men. But other than that, other than those differences, which seem kind of superficial, why are we being told this story again? Why is Matthew using his precious papyrus and ink to tell us about this? Well, first, let's consider the location. The former location was Bethsaida, which was up more towards the north part of the Sea of Galilee, closer to Capernaum. Now, Matthew just kind of describes the location that Jesus is at now as just being along the Sea of Galilee, that he walked along the Sea of Galilee. But when we, when we go to the parallel account in Mark 7.31, about where Jesus went to after he left Tyre and Sidon. It says, Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee, and into the region of the Decapolis. Now, do you see all those towns there that are in black? If you count them, there are ten towns, which is why that whole area, that whole region, is called the Decapolis, because Deca, ten. So the ten cities, that's the whole region that Jesus went into. And those cities were not Jewish cities. They were Roman settlements. Now, that's not to say that there weren't Jews present in them, but they were predominantly Gentile cities. And you'll remember when Jesus cast the demon out of the two demon-possessed men and sent them into a herd of pigs. That was in the area of Gerasenes. You see Gadara, Gadarenes. They, there's variations on the name, but it's in that whole area. And Jews don't keep herds of pigs. 
Only Gentiles do. So again, this is an area where Gentiles are living. Now, there's an interesting detail, though, here in Matthew's account that um, some of you might have picked out. We have indications that the Gentiles, are, that the crowd is Gentile because of the way that they respond to the healing or the way that Matthew describes it. All the healings that they're receiving are miracles that are promised to the people of Israel that the Messiah would bring. In verse 31, it says, And they praised the God of Israel. Now, if this was a Jewish crowd, why would Matthew describe it as they praised the God of Israel? That would seem a little bit redundant when you just say they praise their God because they're Jewish and the God of Israel is their God. And in fact, we see that he doesn't include that kind of detail when Jesus is dealing with the Jewish crowd. Um, when Jesus healed the paralytic man who was let down through the roof. In Matthew 9.8, it says, When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, not the God of Israel, they just, and they praised God who had given such authority to man. So we have just an indication from that, the fact that they praise the God of Israel, that Jesus is ministering to Gentiles here. And in fact, one biblical commentator even points out the differences between the Greek words used for basket here in this passage and the word for basket used in Matthew 14. And in Matthew 14, the word for basket, the Greek word is kofinos which was a Jewish wicker kind of basket. Here in Matthew 15, the word for basket is spiris, which was a larger basket, typically among, used among the Gentiles. Now this is the unfortunate thing with English translations. They just both translate them as basket. But when you dig down deeper into the details, you see some, some fine differences here. So when you add all these things together, it kind of suggests that Jesus is dealing with Gentiles, and it kind of helps explain the curious case of amnesia that the disciples seem to have. Because he asks them, you know, where can we get food for these people? They say, we don't know, just as before. But they don't suggest that he just feeds them like he had just fed that crowd, other crowd not so long ago. And maybe they don't make that suggestion because they figured Jesus won't do that for a Gentile crowd. I mean, he has been healing them, but maybe he wouldn't go that far. So when Jesus feeds a Gentile crowd, just like he fed a Jewish crowd, he's making a statement yet again. He's revealing that he has come for all people. And in fact, some, some commentators look at the number of baskets as being indicative of this, how there's 12 baskets before representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And here we've got seven baskets, with seven being the perfect number representing completion, that God is bringing full redemption to all of the earth. So, once again, Jesus ministers to these people. He dismisses them. Instead of walking across the water again, he just gets in the boat with his disciples. And they cross over to Magadan, which was just a little bit south of Capernaum, 
um, close to the, the place where they landed before, after he fed the 5,000. When we get to talking about this Jew-Gentile divide, I think we can often feel like it's a very antiquated concern. It doesn't dominate our news headlines, and none of us worry about the fact that most of us are Gentiles. We just take for granted that God wants to save us. These texts remind us that we shouldn't take that for granted. However, the truth is, is that neither Jew or Gentile should take it for granted. God chose Israel not because she was worthy, but because he is a faithful and merciful God. And what we see from the beginning is that in choosing Israel, God was intending to not only bring salvation to her, but to the entire world. The Apostle Paul says it like this in Romans 15, verses 8 through 12. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again it says, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will rise to rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. Jesus shows us that God is faithful to his universal purpose to offer salvation to all people. He doesn't only love one tribe or people. All are invited to come to Jesus and become citizens of God's kingdom. God's plan is to save and restore the earth. And consequently, the mission of the church is then really quite often at odds with the schemes of this world. All around us, Loud voices urge us to rally to one tribe or another and declare war on each other. And maybe we are justifiably sympathetic with the concerns of some of these voices. Even so, we must not descend into tribalism. We must not abandon the kingdom of God to build earthly kingdoms. Because all are invited to receive the food that Christ offers. Even we who are dogs are offered crumbs from the table because God loves all people and desires that none should perish. And without that love, neither Jew nor Gentile nor any other human division can produce the eternal sustenance needed for everlasting life. Dear Father, we give thanks to you this morning for your universal love. That yes, Father, you have revealed your faithfulness to the people of Israel. But insofar, Father, as you've been faithful to them, you've been faithful to us. Because all along you've been working everything out according to your plan that we would be saved through Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the King of the Jews. 
Father, the one who is sent to become king of all the world, of all the earth, Father. And so, Father, we pray this morning that you would fill our hearts with gratitude, but also for mercy. That just as Jesus praised the response of this woman as she sought him out in faith, that we would praise and encourage others as they seek you, as they seek Jesus Christ. We know none of us are perfect, Father. We know that at times we have all acted as dogs, but you love us yet. You've shown us this love in Jesus Christ. So let us go to all the world with this love, Father. Let us not jump into the fights, into the visions of this world, but call everyone together to your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offered to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Scituate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Scituate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.